the Worldcraft Club Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, a time devoted to world building and its impact on narrative, where we discuss any and all topics involving the crafting of fictional settings to inspire your creativity. My name is James. And my name is Seth. And we are your hosts for this delightful half hour. All righty. Welcome, dear listeners, to a very special episode of the World Craft Club podcast. Very special, why, you ask? Because we have none other than the game designer, author of two books, Deity Principle and Ordinary Spaceman, and my brother, I.E. Horton. Welcome to the podcast, Ed. Thank you. It's good to be here. Excellent. Uh, so Thank you we, for inviting me. <laughs> We're stoked to have you, man. You're our first guest, so this is this is this is this is it. This is really exciting for me and Seth, who is uh, who is actually with us in spirit. He is lurking in the background, and uh, Ed, Ed and I can both see him right now. He is uh, making suggestive gestures into the <laughs> Ocan and uh, is cannot defend himself because he's on mute. So, um, Ed, like. Before we got started on this, like I've, I actually read your book, Ordinary Spaceman, a while back. And then as we were thinking about people we wanted to interview for this podcast, I remembered so many exciting things about that book that I wanted to reach out to. And it turned out you'd written a second book. Yeah. And so I grabbed that sucker off Kindle and was um, just kind of giving it a read and talking through that. And then I reached out to you and was kind of like, oh, hey, you know, so you wrote a second book. What's going on with that? And you mentioned you were in the world building phase. And I said, Funny thing you should mention world building, because my buddy and I are starting a podcast about world building. And you mentioned that you were starting to kind of redevelop the world in your book. So I'm hoping we can dig really deep into that. So first, you want to give us a, uh, a good overview of your of your setting, the setting. Mm-hmm. Um, the best overview probably is like it's a post-apocalyptic um, space opera with a, a lot of cyberpunk in it. Um, yeah. The reason I, I did it like that is because it's it's basically like Earth has gone. It's it's nobody really knows what happened. They just refer to it as the cataclysm. They yeah. don't know if it was a you know a war, a alien invasion, a um, you know environmental effect, something, whatever it was. And the most important part is the social factor that it had. Yeah, and it was basically it um it wiped the slate clean. All mm. our former prejudices and things like that that had been based in like geographic and cultural niches on earth were now they were gone you know it it enabled us now of course you know 400 years after that event now we're starting to create our own prejudices and new (laughs) new reasons to hate each other and so that seems realistic. That seems about on point. I think that's a that's a good assessment. It's for finding new ways to be racist. Yeah, um, basically, yeah. Wow, that's the <laughs> new frontiers in racism. Space. Yeah, yeah um, space. <laughs> that's really cool. I really like that. Um, so it's it's. I remember in your last book there was a lot to do with uh, kind of that internet setting as well. That sense of um, going. I, I recently played uh, Shadowrun for the first time ever. Seth GM'd it while we were at a con the other day, so we had about 15 minutes of cyberpunk. And he was telling me about the alternate world that exists in Shadowrun, as you have these kind of parallel, you know, substrates of the world going on, and one of them is is the net, and you're you're kind of 
cyberpunk elements really reign through in a lot of your networking and the way that you hold commands of spaceships and things like that. It's very clever. Um, and was featured a lot in ordinary spaceman, right? The crystal Knight, your main character. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of the a lot of the Crystal Knight was based on um, uh, William Gibson's work, which is is the basis that Shadowrun took from. Ah, that's interesting. So it was yeah. it was a you know pretty well well really Philip K. Dick was the one who who really set down what cyberpunk was, but Gibson you know firmed it up and um, you know put the whole thing on the map. Uh, which, oddly enough, then brought Philip K. Dick back into the limelight. But a lot of that was the the basis of those books was that the highest worth commodity that we have is information. You mm. know, if you look at it, information can be used for anything. It can be used to bring someone down far more effectively than like a military strike. Um, information can be used to empower yourself. Um, it can be traded. You know. Yeah. So- some people have more use for certain information than others do so it creates its, its own economy and it's just like information is the thing and that's the feel that i brought to ordinary spaceman because the thing that made the crystal knight so powerful and so um well apart from later in the book but no spoilers yeah. <laughs> but the thing that made the character so powerful was that the character was all you know control of information had natural abilities that that made them far more um almost alive on the on the um info net yeah they were almost almost like an entity that was part of the overall living entity that was the information network it's a little bit like that old adage the pen is mightier than the sword you know that that is a a sense that information and conveyance of information and uh you know people's assent to that or rejection of it is 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 a powerful thing and so um uh, sorry, sorry to divert you to your to your prior work, but uh, in in your in your current stuff with uh, Deity Principle, you're you're doing a rewrite, right? Like you're going back in and, and you're retooling some elements. So yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. The the reason for that um, was because when I wrote the when I wrote Ordinary Spaceman, I wrote the book that I wanted to write. I had the setting that I wanted to do. I had the characters that I wanted to, to have. Mm. Um, and a lot of a lot of the feedback I got from like the positive feedback I got from people was on the characters. Yeah. Now, the other thing is the feel of the technology. I wanted there to be a very specific feel that I really can't put my finger on almost like a submarine kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I didn't want any like warp drives or anything like that. I wanted direct propulsion. And then obviously, you know, distances alone, I've got to have some kind of hyperspace in there. Yeah. So I just wanted to make hyperspace different. Like it was a it was a nothingness, even more of a nothingness than space. Like you have to hit it running and then yeah. just coast through and hope you aimed it right, basically. I um, love that. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's actually that's actually one of the things that I, I I really loved about your book, and I'm so glad you brought it up because yeah. I stare into that. Um, I love that feel in yours. The idea that spaceships are not fun places to be; they're hostile environments. You are, um, you know, you you are cramped in there with a bunch of people, and you have a that the technology to me always felt quite quite gritty and quite 
firm like and there was a sense of claustrophobia that I felt in uh, in a lot of your books, which is interesting because one, one of the things Seth and I like to talk about is that, um, you know, in, in sometimes your narrative and world building ultimately serve tone. Like there is a feeling you want people to have as they're reading. And I love that idea that you, the goal, it, it sounds like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you almost wanted to replicate that sense of discomfort yes. that space has. Yeah, you are spot on. I mean, I think I, I'm not sure of this because I obviously haven't read every science fiction book in the world, but I'm pretty sure that mine has the only ever repairing of the sewage system in the middle of a space flight. So I don't think that's ever come up before. Oh, Ed, you are so perfect for this podcast. <laughs> this is, this is exactly it. Like, and, and, and that's the thing is like, um, we're kind of, it's odd the way we look at technology because, um, you look at, for example, London, uh, had a problem with it, with an outbreak of a number of diseases and it took them a while to figure out where it was. I, I want to say cholera. And uh, they, they, they have this outbreak and they kept trying to find it. And they kept finding out that it was located around water sources and they couldn't figure out why. And they kept bleeding people and leeching people and bleeding people and leeching people. And it wasn't getting them anywhere. And eventually it was an engineering solution. They needed sewers. And um, it's interesting to me that like a lot of times, like these very, very small engineering problems, like uh, Seth had mentioned a little while ago, Anik Morpork uh, yeah. from Terry Pratchett's work, <laughs> how the richest... <laughs> and the richest person in the city was this guy that basically managed managed the sewer system functionally. He took care of all the human waste because that's actually like a massive problem. And I mean, we 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 can literally you can in a world building podcast you can talk about crap and it's significant. Um, no, that's rad. I love it. Uh, you repairing the sewage system in space. Yeah. Uh, that's right on the money. So you, you wrote this book originally, like Ordinary Spaceman, and you had this kind of um, sense of uh, people were enjoying the characters. And uh, but was was it an issue then with the uh, with the world and sort of the, the, the grittiness of it and the claustrophobia of it, the kind of uncomfortable tone that you felt people were taking issue with? That, that's what I what I felt, um, because I do write. I write very dark because I like to write. If you if you're like, I mean, it gets probably even worse in the Deity Principle, but in the case of Ordinary Spaceman, there were like what twenty odd people on that ship. Yeah, um, somewhere in that region. It was a small ship. Yeah, yeah. it was it was like well, twenty odd people, but yeah. they were they were specifically made that number because if you go back through the book, this is just an interesting talking point that I always drop on people. If you go back through the book, you realize that um, there are, I think, I think it's like 20 people. It may be a few more, but there are 19 people that you meet. Um, one per one, uh, and actually 20 is just the, the ground crew. There are 19 people that you meet and one who is never mentioned. And yeah. the reason that the other one is never mentioned is because during the voyage, they do mention the, classifications of all the people on the ship and at that point they define the number of male and the number of female crew members they have yeah and that enabled me to go through that entire book and never once reveal the gender of the main character read it again <laughs> <laughs> that main character and that i stole that from a writer called jh brennan who wrote a series of um like choose your own adventure type books yeah and never was the main character addressed by a male or female pronoun i'm like you know what i'm doing that that's <laughs> go back and check 
<laughs> I <laughs> I was playing a choose your own adventure book and I didn't realize. That's what I love about it. Is like I I I chose elements of your story and um and didn't and and never. Wow, that's. <laughs> I was uh, it's, the reason I like to mention it is because it's one of the things in my entire career. Even if I if I get like a Booker Prize or anything, I think managing to do that for an entire novel is going to be my greatest achievement. I'm I'm going to read it again. I'm going to read it again. Um, that's amazing. <laughs> I love that. That's man, you, you've you've thrown me for a loop, Ed. Um <laughs> <laughs> I can read it again. This yeah, I know. You've just totally screwed me up now. So, um, <laughs> so having gone through your entire first book without revealing the gender of your main character, who I just had totally assumed was a he the entire time, totally assumed it. I and and uh, which which could be personal projection onto the character as well, which is a fascinating element to creating a gender a gender neutral or, or non-specified gender character is that everybody can literally put themselves into their shoes and um and walk through that. So that's that's absolutely fascinating. Um, so here's a here's a good question for you. In your prior novel, you did it. Uh, you mentioned that you'd done them in in a in a direct timeline. Like technically, Deity Principle takes place in the same universe as your first novel, Ordinary Spaceman. Um, what made you choose a post cataclysmic event then? Because Ordinary Spaceman, the world was still ticking along. Kind of. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was very fractured, but it was uh, it was you know present. The um. A, a large amount of it came about um, because I wanted um, basically a sense of isolation. I wanted to not so much go back to the Age of Sail, but that kind of thing, almost a fantasy novel. Mm. Um, like it, I'm, I'm reading, rereading Game of Thrones at the moment, and like parts of that book, people are out of it for for weeks because like you know they're traveling on a long road. Like when Catelyn goes is heading home, but then takes a detour, that part of the book takes like two to three weeks. Mm. And I yeah. like, um, I like the idea of the isolation and that in that without a centralized culture, people can do anything. People would be completely free to create the cultures that they want to create. And a prime example is the daily principle focuses, the mo- most of the story focuses around a specific culture. And the specific culture is an autocracy. And the reason it's an autocracy is because it was the seeds of that were planted in the world of ordinary spacemen, where, because I can't remember how much I went into this in the book, but the back design is that there are no countries anymore. Yeah. They're separated by corporations and the corporations. And then you've got the organized crime, which literally is under that in the, in the terms of the geography of the book. Yeah. It's literally runs under that and is kind of a shadow to it. You know, basically each each organization is like a paramilitary organization. Every corporation, it's it's the ultimate libertarian fantasy, basically. <laughs> Every corporation has its own military. You pay taxes to the corporation you live under, you know, things yeah. like that. And then also every corporation has its own organized crime, not really connected, but almost in a symbiosis. They do the them. wet work or something like yeah. that without kind of under the table. Yeah. Um, or maybe not even that explicit. And it's, uh, yeah, I like that, the symbiotic relationship. That is actually um, explored in the first scene of the book. 
yes. in which the Crystal Knight has stolen from one corporation and is basically selling the information to another corporation. Mm. Yeah. Yes, of course. And uh, that all that all goes south. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's really good. I wanted to I wanted to ask as well, like a, a common theme that Seth and I talk about. And the thing is, you've touched on like a load of stuff in here. Uh, the uh, competing cultures, age of the sale. I'm seeing loads of different influences in here. Having played all of an hour and a half of Shadowrun, I'm kind of like, oh, I kind of get a little, little bit of a Shadowrunny vibe there as well. Not to not to not to label it, but like it's um, I see I see different influences coming in from all over the place, including like real world economies and philosophies and uh, and such. So one of the things that Seth and I have kind of laid out is this idea that like different authors can produce different depths of world with different kinds of uh, hardness or softness to them. And they they kind of both do a good job. So like a good example would be um, Harry Potter, right? You have Harry Potter and a lot of that was like fairly underdeveloped. Like me and Seth were talking about this a while ago. Like they have one bank, it's run by goblins. I wonder what their mortgage rates are like, (laughs) you know, like, and that's a little bit soft. Weasley's own their home. So yeah, you're right. There's going to be somebody gave up that mortgage. (laughs) Yeah. Cause they're not wealthy either. I don't know. There's there's probably, they're probably poor because the goblins are raking them over the coals because there's no competition. (laughs) And like, I'm looking at this and I'm kind of thinking to myself, like you also have like a ministry of magic and I assume it is underneath or at least adjacent to the, anyway, it's, you know, it's adjacent to parliamentary governance in Britain and like all this kind of stuff. And you kind of, you get all these things and it's sort of not in a wink tap, never developed. And you know what? That's fine. J.K. Rowling does just fine with that. Obviously she is sitting atop the world right now on, on stacks of uh, millions of pounds and rightly so she wrote an incredible book. But then on the other hand, you have Tolkien who like studied mythology, wrote, designed and developed his own languages to the point where you can look at a map and you can see something written and it could all be written in English and you can go, that's a dwarven ruin. Why? You know the language well enough to know that sounds dwarvish or that sounds elven. He got it to the point where these cultures were so radically developed and he has all this material going, you know, eons back. And it's very mythic and very broad and big. And he wrote great stuff too. You know what I mean? And we're kind of finding that like there are different depths and hardnesses and softnesses to world building. And, um, you know, what if, if with with let's say Rowling being a one and yeah. Tolkien being a 10, where do you where do you think you sit? I've got a sense where you might sit. But like the, the thing, is, I, I don't know. I don't know where I'd sit on that because I make a general overview, like the general overview of the of. Daily principle is that there are about a billion people left, mm. but they're separated into cultures. So while I haven't designed every single culture on there, every culture I've designed, I go insane on like not not necessarily a history, but a why is this here? How's this fit in with this? Like, um, I don't know if I had it in the version of the daily principle you're reading. There mm-hmm. was a um, they make mention. I don't know if at that point I had that they make mention of the. Um, Citizens contract, which is the contract yes. of the Haven and the Haven yeah. government. Mm-hmm. I've actually written that contract. Like clause, every single clause is prepped. Um, That's rad. The reason I did that is because the other thing that I noticed is a lot, a lot of sci-fi writers like to throw a concept around, and a common one is a currency-free um, society. Yeah. Now yeah. I wanted the Haven to be a currency-free society, but I didn't just want to. F- 
throw the thing around, even though it doesn't really come into the book, I had to, just for my own peace of mind, design the mathematics behind that. How does that work? Um, and that's all in the citizen's contract. It's that and the seven divisions of government, which I you know, stole from the Swiss. But, uh, and they want it back. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course they want it back. It's awesome. <laughs> that's right. I do. I go really in depth. Because I like to – basically what I like to do is I like to make a perfect world and then just break it. Just like break it with reality. Like this is awesome. We have these seven it's, – it's not like seven glowing figures around a um, around a, a crystal who are ruling the place like something. It, it's seven, you know, um, manipulative holes who are just out for themselves like yeah. any politicians anywhere in space and time. Oh, that's <laughs> so perfect. It's, it's got this, this infrastructure that protects – the citizens from the government, but the government know that infrastructure better than the citizens. So that's you know. interesting. I really it's, so for 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 the sake of uh, for the sake of argument, I think I'm going to rate you at about a seven. Okay. <laughs> Here's the thing that I really like, and this is a theme that I'm catching in yours: is your worlds appear to be built off the back of of creating conflict. Like it seems like you take a concept um, like in this one, you you it seems like you almost went like, what's a really great way to run a society? Let's put people in it. And it's like the second you do that, it kind of just falls over. And um, I think that's really interesting. You basically take these. It seems like you're and again, like run over me if, if I'm out of line here. But it sounds a little like you just kind of take two perfect concepts and just smash them together until it starts to break and, against each other. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's I like that notion. That's world building by by conflict effectively. Yeah. And it's it's taking ideas and opposing them. So like in practice, how do you run a thought experiment like that? Like so, you, you know, you're you, you've woken up, you've had your cereal, you had like a good idea pop into your head and you're starting to workshop it. What's your process for workshopping that kind of conflict? My, for, for the conflict, um, the simple thing is when I when I sit. And I look at this society and I go, if I had no morals whatsoever, <laughs> what would I want from the society and how would I get it within the social structure of the society? And that's that's really what I put. And I will I will think about each person and it's like, what what do they want? Yeah. And, and then I'll just I mean, I won't develop every single person, but usually the characters that are interacting within the story, I don't I don't recognize the concept of good and evil. I recognize the concept of people's desires and what they're willing to do to get them. Um, mm. And this is like, you know, nobody's really born being bad. Mm. You know, um, I mean, there are negative feelings out there. Yes. Like, um, yeah. Greed. Greed is just, you know, um, it's like as as one character. I, I don't think this is really much of a spoiler, but one character is is referring to another character's actions, and he says that he was born born with greed in a society without greed. Um, mm. Basically, a society which had which had um, got rid gotten rid of greed by making sure that everybody had their needs taken care of. Yeah. Whereas this man comes into that society. Well, he doesn't come into it. He's born into it with an unending greed. He wants more and there's no, there's no, um, 
there's no real explanation as to why he wants more because everybody in the society is taken care of. Now, yeah. Obviously, there is some rationing and stuff like that involved because, you know, you've got to be realistic. It's not yeah, yeah, yeah. perfect society. But, you know, if if I had if I had food and um, drink and, you know, regular facilities every day just there, I wouldn't I wouldn't really want for much more. Um, yeah. But I'm not like a materialistic person. But I see like in our society, you have people who literally have have billions of dollars. And they want more, despite the fact if they set off on a spending spree tomorrow, yeah, they couldn't spend all that money before they died. <laughs> it's like Brewster's millions, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that, that's fascinating. I, I like this notion that you take what is like ostensibly a great idea, you know, something that is uh, cooked up by like a German philosopher two hundred years ago, and like this is great, and then you just put like a nasty person in the middle of it and say yeah. how could somebody take advantage of this like it's um like ricky gervais when in that yeah. in the invention of lying um i've not seen it i've only seen like the trailer from it and it just it cracked me up because one ricky gervais is just a comic genius and everyone should laugh at him um, <laughs> but it was uh th- there was just this whole thing where he uh he realizes nobody in the world lies he's in a fictional world where nobody lies and he learns to lie and so he just takes advantage of it like completely you'd walk into the bank and just tell tell them he's totally someone else and just he needs their money right now or the world's gonna end and you'd be like oh okay here you go because like there's no one no one's ready for it and that seems to be the 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 ricky gervais in, in invention of lying appears to be a world building methodology in this almost like how can i break this by just putting someone who's entirely self-interested in a system that would otherwise work well with people operating in good faith if, if um, people didn't act like people it really is yeah. I think that's really good. I like the idea of building worlds by smashing things together. And um, so another question I've got for you, and again, like uh, we were, a lot of our listeners are world crafters themselves. They're building stuff up and they want to, they want to build more content. And one of the issues people have often when they're world building is they kind of start on the Tolkien path and they start thinking, okay, languages, cultures, people, geography, and they kind of like start building it up. Um, and they kind of get to about 10% of the way in and then trail off. I've done this a thousand times. I've got a ton of like binders out there with like half, well, I, it's half, like maybe 1% built worlds where I was just like, here's a cool concept. Um, how is it that you kind of like, how do you keep this going, man? Like, how do you keep building this up? How do you track it? How do you build it? Like what, 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 where's the scaffolding? The, um, well, the, the one thing um, to actually know about Tolkien is yeah. that when he set off writing Lord of the Rings, he didn't have all that world built. He he didn't even have a story arc designed. He mm-hmm. he set off. He just basically had the you know the hobbits and everything, Gandalf, and then heading off into the world. And as far as his contemporaries at the time are aware, he had no idea where that story was going. Um, so That's a lot of amazing. his world building came later. Um, That's fascinating. But, yeah, it's it's. I always assume the story well, served the world rather than the other way around in that. That's, that's really interesting. So, um, yeah, keep yeah. going. I'm sorry. I think, I think my, my major scaffolding is that I, I pretty well, especially in, in where I'm taking the deity principle is that I only designed 1% of the human population. So it's like, I I can make a lot of world. I have what maybe five, I think four cultures, 
are three are explored and one's mentioned, and the one that's mentioned isn't technically a culture because it's a coalition of worlds. Yeah. So, you know, you've got like three cultures are really looked into, um, and they all really have different goals, but their goals are to interact. Um, mm. You know, for the most part, one of them just wants to be left alone. But of course, people in it don't want to be left alone. They want stuff. Another one um, basically wants to live an ideal life based on older principles of existence. And, yeah. it, and the the thing that I made about them is um, space Amish. It's working. <laughs> it's like yeah. they're the most they're the most stable society out there, and mm. they're the ones that are laughed at by the by the others. Like um, one of the characters near the beginning of the book. When they ask him about the other culture, yeah, uh, what do you know about their culture? And he says, he says they're an autocracy with currency. How much culture do they even have? You know, they they really don't have anything. Yeah, uh, they're just underdeveloped people. Yeah, that, that's what they assume. They assume that they're stupid and they're, um, you know, crazy and stuff like that. And then when he gets there, he starts to realize, you know, these these people all seem to be, you know, a little more enjoying life. Than, than some people you know they have their like pageantry that. and they have their stuff and the haven has done away with that it's done away with ranks it's very away austere with, yeah it, it's very logical it's almost well i mean it's almost like vulcan but not i mean they, they're still yeah. humans and they still have their their things going on but it's the culture is is very um, i think dry is the the word i'm looking for it's a very dry culture I think that's I think that's a good way to express it. They they, they definitely have um, it's it's very administrative. Yes. Like they they have a they have a sense that they want to get somewhere and the best way to do it is to uh, uh, create bureaucracies to sustain the bureaucracies. Yes. <laughs> like what was that? The bureaucracy is expanding to meet the needs of the expanding bureaucracy. Yes. Pretty <laughs> it's well. really. I like that. I like that. So this is kind of neat as we go through this and. And explore these kinds of these these kinds of concepts. I know I know that you were seeking to kind of add a little bit more grit back into your deity principle, and um and to kind of go back go back in and kind of restore some of this um I guess some of the some of the less comfortable elements of it to make it more more realistic in the sense that you have um so. What is it that makes that appeal to you more necessarily than, say, a, a a more fairy tale kind of world, one where things are a little bit more black and white, clear, explicit, good versus evil? The the thing that wanted, made me want to change that because the um, I didn't find an agent for ordinary spaceman, and mm-hmm. I thought maybe if I like well basically sold out a little, maybe mm-hmm. make something Just a little, little bit mainstream, yeah, then um, maybe I'd get somebody in and then i could start writing what i wanted to write but when i read when i read when i wrote deity principle i basically i felt dirty afterwards like (laughs) like i just you know sold a piece of my soul for for this book and so i went back in to um because obviously the language in um ordinary spaceman was not exactly it was not going to get a pg rating if made into a movie yeah yeah. the language in the deity principle was calmer yeah but also less realistic you know like like you know i think i think it was i think it was steve actually was yeah stephen king in an interview when somebody once asked him about the language used in his book Mm -hmm. and he said 
if you saw a zombie, would you be going, oh, gosh, darn it, it's a zombie? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Get out of here. Yeah. Oh, you know? dear me, a zombie. <laughs> Do we mean a zombie sake. coming? <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's what I wanted. I wanted that grit back. And also, I went into the thing, although I referred to, I can't remember what the ship was called in Ordinary Spaceman, um, but I referred to it as a um, as a ship. One of the things that I've really thought about recently is that the principle of of living in a colony in a planetary colony would be um, a lot of feeling of cramped, and the concept of spaceships wouldn't happen. They they would be because in in a society like that, like building materials and space and everything. Especially having, you know, I've been studying like the space rockets that we have and space is of a minimum. That's not the word I was looking for. Um, yeah. Premium. Space is of a premium. And, um, you know, the concept of spaceships wouldn't happen. We, we would, I, I would quite honestly put my reputation on saying we, there will never be a spaceship. Um, what I've done in data principle now is they've become more like planes, and they're actually referred to as planes. It's like, mm. you know, a crew of nine people, you're tripping over each other. Um, yeah. You all have a very specific job to do. Um, there's no redundancy because, mm. you know, there's there's one pilot, there's one information technician, there's one engineer. Anybody dies, you, you're going to want to find a way to get home. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, cause oh. there's no redundancy of space. Like, um, when I was looking, I was looking through pictures of the, um, international space station and all the supplies are strapped to the walls. So you're in like, like this tunnel like this yeah. and you're working your way through supplies. Yeah. Um, cause you're not going to have like a supply room cause yeah. that space could be used for something else. <laughs> Yeah, because it's it's so the, the comparison here would be like on a on a ship as we understand it today, uh, there's just a ton of space. Ships are used yep. to haul cargo. Ships are used to move things around. Whereas whereas in reality, I I also like your um your uh submarine analogy for it too. This idea that like you've got very little space on there, and so the mechanics change. You're not going to have a lot of redundant crew members. You're not going to have supply rooms. It's not just a big floating tub. It's uh, literally you can't step outside. And the idea that on a colony, you're in a squeezed up tight thing that's on the ground in yep. a spaceship, you're in a squeezed up tight thing that's in space. And so the ability to differentiate between the two might actually be kind of minimal. <laughs> you might just be like, I am in, you know, uh, on, on ex- with the exception of um, loss of gravity, which you which you uh, build upon having having microgravity on yep. board the ship, um, which that's. That's really good stuff. Like that's that's fascinating. That's an interesting way to build it. Um, in terms of your in terms of your note taking and your development on this, are you an avid note taker, or do you tend to find that you keep a lot of this loaded in your head? Now, I, I remember you told us you just before I think we recorded that you'd actually written your uh, citizens contract yes. that's mentioned in there. So like you do create resources at times in order to have them to reference to, even though it's never explicitly written out in your, in your book. So like, what, what's your process for keeping track? Keeping track. Mostly um, a lot of it is in my head mm-hmm. because, you know, I remember the story that I wrote. So I know where the next one's going. Plus That's the next helpful. two, um, 
the next two books in the series, the story arc is mostly already developed. Um, so where I'll get down to writing them is a different matter. But um, yeah, the two, the next two are, are developed based on this one. Um, what I like to do is pretty well when I write, as, as far as in the terms of one story, I will literally do like Tolkien did. I will get there, I'll start, I'll just write, take it somewhere. Then I'll... I'll see things where, where you know, later on in the story where it could be taken in a certain direction, but it needs something from prior in the story. So I'd go back and I leave myself a note in the chapter, like mm. add this, and then I'll basically I'll mix it up again and again and again until I write a final version. Um, okay. So it's a it's a process of recycling through your notes as you write. So it's an engaged, active process of creating the narrative and going, ooh, I think I want to think about this. And so make a note about it and then make sure that you are like recursively accurate, like you've gone through back to the beginning and you've made sure everything fills out right. Man. Yeah, I like that. Every single space flight of any kind is on a spreadsheet because I have all the physics of it. Because I know what sci-fi writers, sci-fi readers are like. They'll go back and they'll go, <laughs> "How could he have been here when this would have been a three-week journey?" And you know, when you've got people writing into you about relativity, you've got a problem. Rel- relativity is actually on my spreadsheet, so uh, they they and, do get to places and they have to recalculate the time that they've lost or gained. Oh. It's it's a masterpiece. <laughs> like it's one of the things I just read it and I'm like. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, keep that up. Um, so I I want to ask this. So this is this is maybe like one of the best questions that I, I think we could we could ask you. When you're writing this, if you could if you could like go back in time and give yourself like a fresh set of advice, set of advice um, what what would it be? You know, what what would you tell ten years prior, Ed, when it comes to the process of world building? What would the one thing you would want to confer on him be? The the most important thing, I think, in like in in just about any discipline, be yourself. Put yourself mm-hmm. on that page. Don't yeah. put you know, because I I often get caught up in things like this is an analogy to to something in history, um, like. Within the daily principle, like the biggest militaristic culture is the main culture. They have a total of nine planes, their entire military, Mm. because planes are expensive to launch. They take a lot of resources to run and operate. And I was started thinking, like, you can't really have a mass battle with that. Yeah. Like, maybe I should increase the number of planes that they have to get the mass battle. And then I was like no, wait a second, I'm going to redesign what the battle looks like. I'm, I'm going to work it within this technology because you're not going to have, no no culture is going to have like, you know, 300 planes that they're going to put to this battle. Just the amount of fuel it would take for them to get there alone is immense. So yeah. you've got to make sure that you keep yourself in everything that you're designing. It's like, kind of, kind of like a sense of be true be true to yourself know that what you're writing that you're happy with it that your content is where you want it to be so not necessarily writing for the purpose of broad appeal not making sure that everybody's going to be on board with it because they're going to they're going to be plenty of people uh that would read your book and go relativistic speeds why crap are we talking about let's flip through this you know like let's skip through that but 
you know that you're when you read it, you're creating content that you love and that you want to be a part of. And that's that should filter into your world building as well as your narrative. So your world should be a labor of love. Yeah. And that's really cool. The other advice I would say is don't skimp. Don't skimp on on the world building. Um, you know, not not necessarily to to design the entire history of your world for five thousand years with every individual rising kingdom or anything Mm -hmm. like that. But for those kingdoms, hit that hard. I'm I'm not a big history writer. But I like to get like a background of why, why did this happen? Why did they start doing it this way? You know, what, what were they attempting to? So, yeah, don't skimp on the individual cultures. Just That's really good. Even if 90% of the information you write on them is never used, the 10% that is used, because it has a solid basis, will make sense. Because you've always got those readers who will be like, well, this doesn't make sense with this. And, you know, yeah, that's perfect. I love that. So like, uh, make it a labor of love, make it your own and, uh, give it everything you got. I sometimes, I literally, sometimes I will have an entire writing session of three weeks, uh, three weeks, three hours, uh, wow. writing session would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> three hours. And I will sit there and just do background. Like I designed the entire military, of a culture, including like rank structure and everything and, mm-hmm. and organization of a culture that's probably not going to show up till the third book if I get that far. Yeah. So, but I, you know, I'll do things like that. I'll design the militaries. I'll design the histories, the, the, you know, what, what drives the culture. Yeah. And, you know, Cause every culture has a drive and I, I get the feeling in it for the most part, the drives are the same. So when you look at like two cultures on this planet that are like completely, supposedly completely different, like China, according to a lot of common wisdom over here, is a is like a a, a communist nightmare and everyone's yeah, down yeah. and everything like that. But I mean, I know there are countries like that and there's a reason people are like that, but there are 1.5 billion people in China. And if that was the case, wouldn't they at least be trying to leave? Because I mean, like Iraq... People were trying to leave. People were like, you know, getting out of it. Let's that get out. Yeah. Something was wrong there. But, mm. you know, with with larger countries like China, there's there's not like a mass exodus across the border. I mean, there are there is immigration, but no greater thing than any other. So people and the other thing I like, I like to consider is people's um, ethnocentricity. Yes. Where they go like, you know, for example, the main character. Oh, actually, there were two or three main characters in the deity principle because I did all storylines. Um, but one of the main characters says, you know, it's very derogatory toward another culture. But then when you come to that culture and you hear them making valid but derogatory remarks about the other culture, you know, because everybody sets their own normality. And yeah. anything outside of that is is quaint or... yeah. It's like where Suzanne turns up in England and she says, everything's cute. Um, (laughs) And I'm like, no, people live here, honey. People live here. That house isn't cute. Someone lives in that house. Um, I I like that. That's interesting that you say valid, but ethnocentric. Like, that's a really interesting thing. It's like where these people can make these comments that a reader can look at and go, yeah, yeah, that's autocratic. That's screwed up. And then kind of be like, you know, you get there and people are pretty chill and you're like, huh, 
all right, well, maybe I need to reassess some things. I think that will create some introspection in your readers, which is fascinating. But look, we're starting to run a little bit long on time. So I want to make sure that we get a sense of like what your time horizons are for your new book and uh, ask our, you know, uh, ask you where our listeners can grab it if they want to. It's probably going to be on Amazon again. Um, yeah. On there. I'm figuring the new year. Um, we're in October now. So I've, I've started to jump on it a little more because I, I made the mistake of starting to play Minecraft and that uh, that pushed the release date back a few weeks. That's um, understandable. That'll yeah. be understandable to all our listeners, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> but takes more time. And <laughs> so our readers, uh, our listeners will be able to find your book on Amazon. And that was Ordinary Spacemen was one of them. And the one that you're currently working on, you're looking for a release in early 2020, the deity principle. All right. So both are available there. And I believe you have an age of the sale themed board game as well. I do, but I don't know where I'm going with that. I have a, I have basically a set thrown together um, yeah. that um, I should probably laminate the cards. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I should probably get some people playing that. Well, I just, keep us I posted. Just it up, send it to you. Yeah, yeah, seriously. Get it. Yeah. <laughs> we're, uh, we're hoping to make it to some more cons. We could uh, set, set some people up on that. It'd be a blast. Um, so, Ed... Thank you so much for joining us, man. Your first interview. Uh, it's, been, it's been really good. I think we've got a lot of great material in here. I think our listeners will love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for bringing me in. <laughs> Thank you for joining Seth and I on the World Craft Club podcast. Please go ahead and like us. Subscribe to us on your preferred app. And if you use iTunes, rate us five stars if you think we're worth the rating. It really helps our numbers. If you're listening here, you're missing out on half the content along with loads of other goodies. So please consider becoming an exclusive club member at our Patreon page, starting at as low as $5 a month. If you have any questions, you can go ahead and jump on our webpage, worldcraftclub.com, to get the latest updates on our blog. We're also available on Twitter and Instagram. This has been the World Craft Club podcast. Thank you for listening.